Thanks for joining us on the King Law Podcast, where we give you a lawyer's perspective on anything legal. Or not. From criminal law, personal injury, and trending legal topics, we're your back pocket legal guide. So this is a super exciting uh, podcast. I don't know, we're getting, we've done quite a few of them now, uh, but the topic today is silicosis and silicosis lawsuits. And, and we have Gary here from the Simmons firm. He has been all over um, the country litigating at a very high level for a really long time. Um, I want to talk to you, has some incredible um, verdicts in his in his past, has worked at a number of different firms, both in Texas and now um, he's located in Virginia. But go ahead, Gary, introduce yourself and, and give us, a, give us the uh, 30, 30 second version of what we need to know about Gary. Okay, fair enough. Uh, thank you. First of all, thank, thank you both for having me. First of all, I appreciate it. Um, but I am Gary DiMuzio. I am with the Simmons Hanley Conroy firm and was brought into the firm in 2019 mainly to try uh, mesothelioma and similar cases. It's also a dust disease like silicosis. Um, I started back in Texas, which in many ways was ground zero for a lot of asbestos and silica litigation. Some of the the big stuff started down there. And uh, I was lucky enough before actually practicing to go to a school, the University of Houston Law Center, that had a lot of environmental and occupational law courses. Almost a third of my entire law school degree was stuff like Superfund Law, REPRA, Chemical Hazard Disclosure, and lots of clerking opportunities with companies, uh, organizations like the Environmental Defense Fund. I got to clerk for the uh, Harris County Attorney's Environmental Division. And so, so got a lot of good experience doing that sort of thing. Started practicing in earnest in about 1994 when I was out of school. Uh, I also went to the School of Public Health at the University of Texas and took basically an environmental and occupational health series of courses. So I've had graduate coursework and things like epidemiology, toxicology, and, and that sort of thing, which has been invaluable. It's, it's sometimes it seems more useful to me for what I do than my law degree. <laughs> you know, so much of this stuff is a battle of experts, so to speak. So that's what I did. I started doing in, uh, big environmental cases, contaminated communities. Uh, three or four years later, I started doing silicosis. Uh, with a little bit of asbestos mixed in. And really ever since then, since about 97, the vast majority of my practice has been either mesothelioma cases or silicosis cases. And uh, was lucky enough to get a really interesting, uh, terrible for the people, but interesting uh, cases of silicosis where the people had either a very advanced form that would progress, or they might have lung cancer as well or uh, autoimmune diseases like scleroderma. So it, it was uh, sort of a fascinating, if terrifying experience going through that on behalf of myself and my clients. And uh, that's pretty much what I've been doing to this day. Uh, in my later, more recent years, it tends to be mainly trial work. That's mainly what I do for the Simmons firm. As they send yeah, me around. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to have Gary on. And we, we love trial lawyers. Everybody know our background. I started out as a criminal prosecutor, and that's how I got the the trial experience that that most people in our professional a lot don't have it. And I guess trial lawyers are trial lawyers, and we're interested in. And we talked about this on the phone the other day. There's so many paths to get to uh, 
you know, the group of lawyers who we know now and everyone's past a little different, but how did you, you you're trying, there's not a whole lot of lawyers out there that have tried and had the, the uh, success at the trial level that you have, Gary. And, but, but how do you start out? You don't do a $10 million case your first day. What, uh, how'd you get your, you know, your 10,000 hours. And I always say, that's a good way to put it. Now that's interesting. And especially with what I started doing big environmental cases, you know, coming in as a baby lawyer, I did have a lot of good background. I, I had actually investigated two major environmental toxic torts and knew the science really well. So I was very useful to the trial lawyers, but you're not going to be the trial lawyer in that situation. I mean, you're talking about cases with two to 3,000 plaintiffs, you know, all sorts of experts all over the place. And I, I was working for a fellow named John O'Quinn. He was the sort of the big master of early mass torts. He's the fellow who put Dow Corning into bankruptcy uh, uh, over the, the breast implant stuff. And so that's how I got started. And that was invaluable, but again, very little trial experience other than getting those guys ready for trial, right? I mean, that was the role that I played. Where I started getting trial experience uh, was when I switched to dust work, to doing silicosis and asbestos type work, which was almost all mesothelioma. And uh, the situation with that is that there's just so many cases and they're so spread out that it was a good opportunity for younger lawyers to start doing not only a lot of depositions, but actually doing work at trial. And by the time 98, 99 rolled around, I was to the point where I was second chairing and getting to do a lot of um, a lot of the witnesses at trial and that sort of thing. And then by the early 2000s, I was to the point where I had enough experience where I would do some second chairing, but some lead chairing. And uh, a lot of litigation tends to not go to trial, even nowadays. In that regard, I guess we're lucky that there, I'm lucky that there's enough of a fight where in the asbestos world, especially these things do go to trial. They go to trial a lot. And so that's basically all I do for Simmons now. Almost all that I do is, you know, kind of go to, you know, New Orleans, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Boston, and try or begin to try the lawsuits. And so I think some of it was just dumb luck and some of it was the nature of the docket and the way the cases were getting worked around the country where I managed to get in a courtroom quite a bit. Well, I think we got to name drop Larry Nassif a little bit. I, I think the way he's running your firm is brilliant. Um, and and bringing in a guy like you to try cases. And we go against insurance companies in various different cases. Everybody knows if you're willing to try cases or not. And you talk about a firm that's really doing a great job for, for victims of mesothelioma. Your firm is able to not try cases and get value because they know that Gary's going to show up if they don't. Uh, they're settling a lot of cases. Your firm's settling a lot of cases at what the case is worth or what you think the case is, is going to be worth because what did they say? It walks off and carry a big stick. I think the guy said yesterday, Mike said. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, no, Larry, Larry and the firm has done a great, they've done a great job and uh, I'm not the only trial lawyer up there to be honest with you. We have several trial lawyers with the firm. They all do great work. We all get along amazingly enough. You might not think that in the world of lawyers, but we do. And we're all willing to like on, on a moment's notice, hop on an airplane and help the other guy or other girl out in trial. Uh, so that's been very, very good. The other thing that's just really terrific about 
them is that they hire people who are good at certain things like myself and the other trial lawyers and they let us pretty much do that but they have these litigation teams built up around the case who do just an absolutely great job you know getting out the exposure and what products were used and all the other aspects of the case that you need to really do the trial effectively they do that on an absolute world-class basis and yet when it comes time to try the lawsuit they pretty much they hire good people and let them do what they're good at i, I almost feel like it's my lawsuit my law firm even though i'm just one of many attorneys at the firm because they they let me exercise the judgment that i need to especially you know uh, kind of in the heat of battle you know i need to change my strategy i need to get this expert i need this document they, I'm not, they don't second guess me. And that, that's a remarkable thing. Yeah. What's your favorite part of trial? Uh, boy, that, that's a good question. Uh, I, I, I like to think that I like the subject matter and I approach it from the aspect of not just liking just the science or the legal technical end, but it's really the stories of the people who we represent. I mean, and that's something lawyers sometimes forget about. They talk about this lawyer's case and that, that lawyer's case is not our cases. It's it's the client's case and they're the ones with the story. It's the, they and their family story. And I think getting that out and letting them get their day in court and it, it does a lot for them. I mean, uh, you know, uh, just just going over the fact that at one time they weren't so sick and they could carry water. They could, you know, carry the weight for their family. It's good for them to be reminded of that. But also they, they want their day in court. They want to let people know, hey, I kept my nose to the grindstone. I did what I was supposed to do. And this has unfairly happened to me. And now I have to worry about not just me, but my family. I mean, that that's the part. That, that really resonates and you never forget. You're gonna forget the expert or the scientific paper from 20 years ago. You're not gonna forget that poor person that did what he was supposed to do and yet suffered tremendously. Right. So we all have that case and uh, that, that sticks with us. And you talk about the story, I don't know if there's a story you wanted to share, one, one that uh, kind of has stuck with you th through your career, a case that's maybe noteworthy for you. Well, you know, and, and that's sort of another thing. I almost feel like, uh, you know, I should have been uh, had a part time job with the Smithsonian Institute filming some of my conversations with my clients because they're just amazing. But I, I think just in terms of like, you know, kind of wow factor at one point in time, especially in the late 19, you know, before 2000, you would still get a lot of these World War Two vets. And these guys could just tell you amazing stories. Uh, you know, for example, I had one fellow who uh, talked his parents into letting him join the army when he was still 17. And uh, he goes to Germany, wants to fight for America. He's relieving a bunch of troops and they say, forget it, kid, you're going home. We've been here six months, nothing's happening. This war's over. And two days later, the Battle of the Bulge started. <laughs> This guy, he's 18 and he was in a tank killer. So, I mean, you know, those are the sorts of stories you get from these guys. I had a, I had another Navy fellow who actually got caught in a typhoon in World War II and his, his destroyer lost power and the ability to navigate and it sank in the middle of a typhoon, 125 mile an hour winds, 
60 foot waves. He had never told his wife even about it. He was married at the time. He would not discuss anything. And so I go to meet with him and his wife said he never talks about it. And I got to sit on his porch, the nice day out in California. And I said to him, you don't have to talk about this. I understand this is a sensitive subject, but you know, you, you know your prognosis, you know, you're probably not going to be here at trial. And this might be a good way to humanize you to the jury. So you're not just a statistic. And he told us the whole story about how the storm got bad and they lost power. And, you know, they tried to pull a lifeboat off the thing and got tossed into 60 foot waves. And uh, they had to battle that for a day and a half. And then it was a day of sun where they got sunburned, scorched. And then the third day, shark attacks. I mean, so those are the kinds of stories you would get from these World War II guys that just you, you can't believe what you're hearing. You, just, you, you know, it's just it's just remarkable. Uh, my father, I was kind of a late in life child for my dad, but he was a World War II Marine. And I actually represented a couple guys who fought in the same Guadalcanal Marshall Islands campaign as my then deceased father. But, uh, you know, I did, it's just a huge kick to see that and see American history come into it with these guys personal struggles and you know how they dealt with that sort of thing so there's a lot of good stories out there experience that um well let's let's, let's break talk about silicosis what uh, is silicosis yeah. <laughs> that's not a bad uh not a bad question it's not a mineral silicosis is the disease it's it's a disease of the lungs and it's caused by silica and uh, one thing I wouldn't want anyone to take away from this is going to the beach, which is filled with silica, is dangerous. It's not. It's too big. <laughs> the pieces are too big. You, you've got to have small, fragmented pieces of the silica. And when you breathe it in, uh, because it's basically rock, right? That's what sand is. It doesn't go away. It stays in the lung and it not only irritates and cuts the lung in the way that you would think, but your body has an immune response to it. And so what happens is you begin to develop scarring through the lungs and uh, silicosis can sometimes mercifully enough be a very minor disease that the person might not have ever known if they didn't get an x-ray or a CAT scan. But if it's severe enough, it will progress. It, even if you stop being exposed to silica, the, there's enough of it in the body and there's enough of an immune response where the destruction to the lung tissue uh, continues over time. And it's, it's somewhat similar to like emphysema or COPD that many people may be familiar with. It's sort of similar. It's a very distinct disease in the way it looks on x-ray, et cetera. Uh, but that's it. So it's this terrible uh, disease, which can be fatal, can make you predisposed to other sorts of diseases. And I think the biggest tragedy of it all is that it's 100% preventable. You, you don't get this from bad luck. You get it from silica exposure, which we can control. What kind of dust causes silicosis? So is it like, can concrete or quartz or granite cause this? Yeah, yes, it can. Uh, there, there is some confusion over that. Probably some types of concrete have very low capacity, but certainly a lot of concrete does. In fact, you may have even noticed if you see people working on the streets and like cutting into the street itself, that sometimes they'll be spraying water on it, right? That's a dust suppression method because we've learned that that can generate extremely high exposures. Uh, 
any kind of grinding or manipulation of a rock with high silica content, like granite, right? The sorts of things you have on your tabletops and bathroom sinks. Uh, traditionally, that was the thing that they would use, granite. Any grinding of that sort of thing uh, can cause this dust to be small enough where it's respirable, very tiny particles, sometimes so tiny that it's invisible. Somebody could be in an environment that looks completely fine and normal white, but there's enough of these microscopic silica particles to uh, actually cause disease. So who's most at risk for the exposure? It's really any workers uh, who, again, manipulate, sand, drill, mix these sorts of products, and I can talk about that a little bit more. Uh, This is also not some modern rocket science. Uh, In the year 1900, they were already publishing about what we call uh, acute silicosis, a form of silicosis you can get very, very quickly. Okay, uh, We can talk a little bit more about the diseases in a moment. Uh, but what was causing that particular sort of thing were people who were drilling into granite. So any kind of drilling or cutting uh, can do it. Uh, but also things like finishing, sanding, sawing uh, granite or related materials to be used for, you know, in your home right, or the walls of the courthouse, right, often granite and that sort of thing. And so those are the sorts of people who are doing it. Now, in recent years, they've started using this sort of what they call engineered stone or engineered granite. Some people just call it fake granite or phony granite. Uh, People pick their, their, uh, their description for the surface for the substance. But the real problem with that is that it has all the problems of granite but it's worse. It's even, they make it from various powders and additives, including high silica content materials. And they mix it together in a form, much like you would mix concrete together, right? And uh, they let it harden and it can look remarkably like real granite. You, know, you really have to kind of train yourself to tell the difference between the two. And it looks great. It's probably from a manufacturing standpoint, a great product because you can, you know, mold it to certain shapes and minimize, you know, the kind of, you know, post-factory manipulation that needs to be done just in terms of your cost. But the mixing of that causes tremendous levels of exposure. I mean, it's just, you know, throw flour up in the air and you get an idea of what's happening when you make this stuff, right? I mean, it's there. It's so bad that even traditional ways of of protecting workers, like having ventilation fans or trying to use wetting techniques, seem to be inadequate to control this extremely high exposure. And it's not just the people who are mixing it, it's the people who are cutting it the people who are sanding it, the people putting the finishing touches on these products. And again, it, it, the exposures are so bad, we're not getting uh, what is a little bit more traditional in this country, the chronic form of silicosis, which can take years to manifest. We have people getting uh, very, very ill in a period of months to a year or two because the levels are so intense and it's a little bit of a different disease than the traditional chronic form. It, it's a type of problem that can get very bad very quickly. It will definitely progress. And absent an extraordinary measure like a lung transplant, that person will die. Well, so what, it, that, like, what are the symptoms 
of silicosis? Again, good question. Most people begin to manifest it. Uh, it. It can almost seem like a cold coming on or allergies or asthma. You know, they just start noticing that they have a cough. It tends to get worse when they're at work, you know, when they're breathing more of this sort of thing. And, but that's the problem. As time goes on, it begins to get worse. It gets deep into the lung. It's not an uh, upper respiratory thing in your nasal passages. We're talking lung tissue being affected here and probably coughing and tightness and difficulty of breathing is, is the problem. And the worse the exposures, uh, the worse the breathing problems can be to the point where some people actually start to have pain when they breathe. Uh, some of the, you read some of the early um, autopsies of people when they were first investigating this around 1900 world war one 1920s time frame and they would talk about you know cutting people's lungs and there would be so much silica in there that it felt like they were cutting wet <laughs> wet sand <laughs> in people's lungs so you can imagine if you got that much sand in your lungs your lungs are not going to work and so this can develop over a time of either like a couple months or a couple years. It just depends on the exposure. Exactly. It's become very clear over time that there are three forms of this disease. And uh, the most common one uh, traditionally in the United States has been this chronic form of silicosis, which uh, is very similar to asbestosis to your listeners who know that disease. It takes a long time to develop. A lot of the cases are pretty mild. Some can get bad and some can be fatal, but a lot of them tend to be more mild. And then there's these other two forms, which unfortunately are coming back into focus in the United States and really around the world. And that would be the uh, acute and the accelerated forms. And the acute form in particular can start within months, uh, certainly within a year to two years, then the accelerated is uh, not far behind, two, four, or five years, which is a very short period of time, right, to be doing work and ha having it turn into a fatal disease. In fact, those two forms, absent a lung transplant, that poor individual is gonna die. Those diseases are gonna progress. What makes it fatal? Does it cause cancer? I mean, other than the scar tissue that's building up, is does it cause any other problems? It, it sure does. First of all, the, the scar tissue itself, uh, the, the types of scarring that occur uh, is enough to kill you right there, just straight silicosis. Sometimes they'll use the term complex silicosis, but um, silicosis suffocates you. you you can't you can uh, no longer intake oxygen and and put get co2 out of your body is that uh, it actually gets in uh you know it's bad enough just being anywhere in your lung but the problem with again these very small microscopic particles is that they migrate down into the air sacs and they actually destroy the air sacs right i mean think think about what would happen if you made sand into really teeny tiny particles uh, what do we make glass out of we make it out of sand <laughs> so that's what it's doing it's literally just scissoring the cells of your body on that level right where the air meets the blood flow right to the body that's where the damage occurs gary all the the increases that you're talking about your research and, and our in research seems to indicate that that is coming in large part from the granite countertop industry. That's that's right. A, that's right. not every case, but it's a lot of the cases that, that uh, you're seeing right now. 
Absolutely. Uh, in fact, I really had not been doing too many silica cases. They would come up periodically, but I was doing a lot of that in the late 1900s, uh, you know, 1990s and early 2000s. And I was tending to get cases from people who were sandblasters, people who'd worked in foundries where they use sand and silica flour uh, for mold, silica flour being ground up silica, you know, what could be worse? <laughs> it ends up probably you grind it to exactly the wrong size. And those were the kinds of cases that I was commonly getting. What we've seen in just the last few years is sort of a new case. And a lot of people who stopped publishing it, scientists, have become very interested in it again because it's happening at an alarming rate in this industry producing this fake granite countertops. It, it seems to be a real problem and the uh, it doesn't seem like they're warning the workers. It doesn't seem like they're doing the things they need to do to prevent the exposures to the extent that's possible. And it's producing diseases that can kill people in a matter of months to a year or two. If you could reach out to those people that are working in this industry and just give them, based on your many you know, decades of experience with silicosis, what, what would you tell these folks? Well, if they're currently doing this work, they need to get the information uh, that they need to protect themselves, right? I mean, uh, one of the earliest documents, 1930s, for a serious dust disease, it was actually as, asbestosis at the time, but uh, they, they said the employer has a duty to give the worker a sane appreciation of the risk because they can't take responsibility for themselves if they don't know the dangers, right? And so they need to get that information from their their employers and their employers and the people who sell them the silica and things that they're using to make these things have to provide MSDS sheets, the type of information sheet required by OSHA. And so any kind of material that has a lot of silica in it, there should be in the workplace information explaining what it is and what steps to take to protect yourself. And you need to take those steps to protect yourself, you know, under the law, it's okay to make something that's dangerous, uh, especially if it's obviously dangerous. But if it's not obviously dangerous, what we sue them for isn't just having a bad stuff that made someone sick generally. It's really because they didn't warn the workers, right? And so if that's the equation, the workers uh, should ask their employers for the appropriate information and do what they need to do to take those steps to protect themselves. There isn't really a foolproof way to not be exposed if you're working with this. No, it's not because uh, typically what we find is that uh, historically this goes back not just recently but 100 years or more that employers will often give false information to the workers. Oh, that was the old days. Things are different now. We know we have this fan here that's going to take care of the problem. Well, particularly with this research, sometimes equipment that might have been okay for granite to reduce the exposures is not okay for the phony granite. The levels are so high that the traditional methods. So this is something where, uh, you know, probably your average shop even wouldn't have somebody on staff that knows enough. The, the employer in that case, they have to reach out to the suppliers or manufacturers or hire an IH and have them come in and say, this is what you need to do to be in compliance and keep the levels below uh, a point that causes illness. 
So, and that's probably the same advice that you would give to a smaller shop, maybe a distributor or a, a mom and pop granite shop here that's local where we live, a smaller city. You, they have some obligation to look into this stuff, but the, they probably don't. They're not scientists. They don't necessarily know the difference between granite and fake granite and the differences, but they still cut it, manufacture. They don't manufacture it, but manipulate it in some way. Uh, they got some. I guess uh, they should be taking some steps as well. Right, right. And, and I, I think you raise a great point. In fact, it, it's a point that's been acknowledged by OSHA and NIOSH. They've actually at some points have had like reach out programs where they would try to reach out to small companies because they realize they don't, you know, it's not like GM or Ford, right? They're not going to have the money to hire experts and well, and, and, uh, you know, part of the responsibility of, of governmental agencies like OSHA and NIOSH is to go out and, and provide information to these people in a form they can understand about what they need to do. And uh, that, that's, that's a, a key, key point here. Um, you, you just see the same problem play out over and over again where the workers don't know and oftentimes the small shops don't know and again what does it come down to it it's the people who are really making lots of money from the manufacturing or supplying of the raw materials that go into this they really are the ones that have the major duty to you know put a warning on the product provide an MSDS sheet with the product when they sell it, telling them in more detail than a label could do about how to protect yourself. Because this is not curable, right? Like you can't get the dust out of your lungs. That's the, unfortunately, that is the tragic problem here. And again, once it reaches a certain point, it's irreversible. Even if you get away from the silica, it's going to continue to get worse. And the only thing that you can really do, and this is really fairly recent, I, I've had one uh, lung transplant case, which uh, was successful, all things considered. Uh, getting your lungs ripped out is never a joy, uh, as you can imagine, and that's literally what happens with a lung transplant, a uh, very expensive procedure and a very risky and painful procedure, but it, it will give added years, sometimes a very high quality and sometimes quite a few extra years of life to people for that. So that that's sort of the bright side of the, the treatment not a candidate for that. I'm you sorry, what was that? You can't do that for everyone who's been exposed and not everyone would be a candidate for that. No, exactly. When you try to get a lung transplant, you'll find that what, what happens is that you'll be sent to someone to evaluate you. And it sounds strange enough, but if you're too sick, for example, you can't get the transplant because right. you're not strong enough to handle it. So they've got to get you at that sort of, you know, just right, not too hard, not too soft stage, right? Uh, and it, it's, it's a sad thing. But even at that, I mean, uh, it's not a magic pill, you know. I mean, uh, you, you're talking lung transplants. Uh, that's that's major surgery. That's a form of violence toward your body. That you know, even if you were completely healthy and right. had no problems, and they did a lung transplant on you, you would not be the same person ever. Really, yeah. I mean, yeah. You know. This might sound kind of like a dumb question, but in some of these cases, that maybe maybe it's like under the table where someone's working on these uh, countertops or whatever like how do you how do you prove that silicosis was from the granite or a different type of material 
Right. That, that's, that's a great question. And that, that goes right back to the early part of the 20th century where these companies got very organized on how to deny responsibility. They had a whole game plan, as you can imagine, to do that. But basically what you'd have to do, the, the traditional way of coming to a conclusion that you're suffering silicosis would be usually some symptoms start to get bad enough where the person feels he needs to go to the doctor. You know, my chest hurts, I'm having trouble breathing, I shortness of breath, uh, those sorts of symptoms. And they go, and the first step would be to get an x-ray. Now, an x-ray is not enough by itself, but it can tell you a lot. And they'll take an x-ray, and the way silicosis looks, it's very different than the way asbestosis looks. Silicosis looks like little BBs, and you generally in the middle and upper portions of the lung. So when they look at it, the scars tend to be circular, and they tend to be mid and upper lung, at least in the earlier stages. And that's a pretty good sign that there's a problem. Uh, it, it doesn't in of itself mean that silica caused it. For example, a disease that it's often mixed up with, and especially in the early days, is tuberculosis, TB. That's exactly what TB looks like, too. It looks like little BBs in the upper portion of your lung. And weirdly enough, getting silicosis makes you more likely to get tuberculosis on top of it. Could so, you get a biopsy? You can do a biopsy, and that will clarify several things, you know, that this is scarring, what type of scarring. But the other real ringer is that it finds the, the murder weapon at the scene of the crime. I mean, you find sand. People's lungs, you know. So that's a pretty good that. And of course, you you can't uh, underestimate the power of just talking to these people and getting their occupational history. I mean, you know, if they don't have tuberculosis and they worked in an industry uh, with silica exposures and they have these BBs, et cetera, et cetera, you can see you're getting down the checklist where any normal doctor is going to go. Yes, yeah. And this may be a little off topic, but I think it's very relevant for some of the people that could listen to this. Uh, one of the things that we've seen, this industry is heavy in, in the state of California, near the Mexican border. There are people who are uh, not citizens of the United States. Can they still bring a claim? Can they still contact uh, either my firm or your firm? And, and, and uh, you know, if they're injured here because of their job, what do you recommend for those people? No, absolutely. Uh, you know, being a foreign national is no bar to this. I mean, in, in other words, the companies who do bad things don't get a pass just because, you know, you may not have a current good green card or you may not be a United States citizen. That That is not, not acceptable. And your damages are as severe and uh, personal to you and your family as anybody. So don't let that be uh, an impediment to contacting a lawyer. Of course, the first thing you should do if you're having health problems is talk to your doctor, right? I mean, they, they pull rank on us when it comes to these serious health problems. But, you know, not to toot our own horn, but I think even a lot of doctors would say we do great things for these people. We give them enough money to get treatment, right? We, we make the treatment possible for them, uh, which, you know, in some, some jurisdictions, people may have access to medical care anyway. Some they don't, and they'll have to pay their own medical bills, and, and uh, a merit-based a merit lawsuit can help pay those bills and take care of these people and their families. It doesn't cost anything to talk to you. I know what our firm does. You call up, we'll talk to you. I think actually one of the great, we talk to people every day who don't have a case, who we don't represent, but we'll sit with them for as long as it takes to inform them of their 
situation and and at least they have peace of mind okay th- that's not me that's not for me what or, or it is and and they can we can give them some options Right. And, and, you know, I'm sure you've been through this before. Sometimes the, you know, the happiest thing you can say to somebody in a situation like this is you don't have psychosis. I mean, because you don't want that. Some people think they want a lawsuit. It's not a good trade. I mean, a, a lawsuit is always second best to having your body intact and being healthy. People call us and sometimes we take their case and I say, I, I hope I get you very little money because that means great recovery. Um, it's not, we want you to have a great recovery. And unfortunately some people don't, and we'll be very aggressive for those people, but. Uh, right. And it's very tough for these people because a lot of times the, the, the most likely victims of silicosis have traditionally been people who are kind of struggling working class type of people, uh, paycheck to paycheck type of situation. In fact, if you, if you follow where the disease has moved over time, it, 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 it leaves the areas where the workers get more power and a little bit more money and goes to areas where they don't. It, it really started in New York and Massachusetts and place like that with the early industrial revolution. And that's where silicosis really took hold in the United States was in the Northeast. What happened is that by the 20s, those workers got smart enough and organized enough where they started pressing their their political representatives and the unions, right? They came up and they started, you know, insisting on healthier work conditions. What happened? They moved some of those plants to the South where you had politically disenfranchised whites and blacks, you know, a ready source of people you don't have to take care of very well when they're your employee, right? And, and what's happening now, now it's going to undocumented workers and people like that. It's following the historic pattern. Let's pick the most vulnerable people who won't be able to demand uh, compensation, uh, et cetera, for their illnesses, except if they get the right lawyers, they can get that compensation. And, and I think it's it's worth mentioning. I know some, some people are very scared to, to speak against the government, depending on where you're from and how you grew up. Um, there's lawyer client privilege, right? You call us up, everything is, we can't tell anybody anything. We can lose our law license if we do that. I think it's it's very safe to make a phone call and, and we can advise you of, you know, based on a case by case basis. Absolutely. And, you know, there, you know, I, I, I can understand the fear of communicating, especially if you feel like you, you might, you know, be in the country without an appropriate green card or illegally, that there's going to be some fear of that sort of thing. Uh, but the, the lawyers should be able to help you get through that sort of thing. And additionally, uh, I don't want everybody to think that all the government is bad. A lot of the government is really trying to help people with silicosis now. Uh, the person who was in charge of OSHA during the Obama years is a fellow named David Michaels. He's now a professor at George Washington University. But he his, his big project for eight years was to lower the allowable levels of silica in the workplace. He saw this happening, you know, kind of on the horizon, not so much the fake granite, but just the increase in silicosis around the country. And he worked very, very hard. He considers that the crowning achievement of his eight years at OSHA was to lower the the exposure standards. So people uh, should only be getting exposed to extremely low levels of silica pursuant to our government doing the right thing. And that's the type of expert that your firm's working with, the Simmons firm, is working with the top level experts. And I, I think it it goes without saying for us, but for people, 
one of the things you get when you get a lawyer or a law firm is access to their experts. And I think you have the reason you want an experienced silicosis lawyer or mesothelium lawyer is you know all the experts, you know who the best experts that are going to help people are. And, and what you're saying is very, I know what you're saying is very important, but you have access to a person like that is, right. is really invaluable for the folks out there that may need to give you a phone call. No, absolutely. And um, in fact, it, it, this is one thing that sort of surprised me before I was a lawyer and became one. I thought you could just bring your local doc in and that would be good enough. Or you get somebody that has published about toxic materials and that would be enough. It really isn't. It's really best to find people who published in this area, who've really done research and that sort of thing and publish. And that's always been the way I've done. I, I've, you know, I've worked with the former assistant uh, surgeon general on these types of cases, uh, people who've been lifelong professors at university that have, you know, 20 page CV of various publications on silicosis. That's who you want because it gives you a lot more credibility and makes any of the attacks that the defense brings that much harder. You know, when you get the people who've spent their life doing this, not to be a plaintiff expert, not to be a defense expert, because that's what they were intellectually interested in doing over the course of their career. Those are the kinds of people you want on your team. No, I was going to say, so who are you suing in this claim? Well, you know, that's going to depend on what part of the country you're in to some extent. For example, even with like sandblasting, I would sue a different sand supplier in Texas than I would in California because, you know, who wants to buy sand in Texas and ship it to California? It's heavy. (laughs) You know, you don't want to do that. So it's going to vary on where you are in the country. But the sorts of people, uh, for example, these this fake granite type of a case, you would be potentially suing the manu- the uh, employers in some jurisdictions. You can do that, uh, and certainly employers do have a duty to make a safe workplace for people. Having said that, though, they're not the only ones. It's a team of people that have a responsibility for the workers, and that would include everybody in the entire chain of commerce here, the people who supply the silica, the people who supply the other ingredients that they know are going to be used to make this sort of phony granite. You know, it's not like you're just making a chemical and they can put their head in the sand, no pun intended, you know, and ignore what's going on. They know what these chemicals are being used for, and they've got a duty to do it. There can be, uh, for example, if they're using uh, protective equipment, which I would applaud that, you have to use the right kind of protective equipment and it has to be used in the proper way so sometimes you can bring in people uh, companies that make uh, respirators and masks of various sorts which may have some tremendous limitations in terms of these sorts of exposure you can't make a product say this band-aid will cover the wound and that's the end of the story it's more complicated than that right you talked about going after the manufacturers of like the granite, but would that also be considered international? Doesn't a lot of granite come from like Italy or other parts of the world? It, it can be. That can get super tricky because sometimes yeah. you just can't get the jurisdiction on some companies. And I, you know, I think that the history of both silicosis and especially asbestos. Uh, is replete with companies who really didn't get their just desserts in the United States, maybe in some other place they did. Uh, But it can be very tough to pull in some of these international defendants, but it happens. I mean, I'm actually, this month, I'm going to Tokyo to take the corporate rep 
of a couple companies who never uh, were, had a shop open in the United States, but sold products here. So it, it can be done, but it, it's not an easy dance. It'd be tricky. Gotcha. So how would one um, file a claim? Well, you, you first of all, uh, it all begins with the appropriate diagnosis, right? And um, so what does that mean for your average person on the street who may have these suspicions? You don't have to walk into an attorney's office with signed, sealed, delivered declaration, I've got silicosis and my job caused it. But there has to be enough to, to you know, it's not just, you know, I started this job last week and I'm a little concerned about it. You know, you won't have silicosis after four days of work, right? I wouldn't expo- I wouldn't advise being exposed for four days to high levels, but you won't have it. But, but things like, you know, a high suspicion index, you've worked in that industry for weeks or months or years, you're beginning to have breathing problems, your doctor has told you that you have scarring. A lot of doctors are not sophisticated enough to find this. So, you know, I find personally, you can't completely rely on the doctors that these people are going to. For example, silicosis can look just like TB and you can have them at the same time. So you can see your average doc who doesn't do this, he sees these goofy BBs on somebody's x-rays. He runs a TB test. The guy's positive for TB. He goes, that's the end of the story. Well, it really isn't if you know the whole story, right? And so I think you've got to have enough of a medical and exposure history to raise the suspicion index. And then I think it becomes a, a series of communications between you and your lawyer about what needs to be done. And the lawyers uh, doing this, if they're adequately experienced and adequately connected, they will know who you can go to, you know, who can do the x-rays, who can do the CAT scans, who can do any other sort of associated testing. For example, there's other diseases other than just the scarring. I probably didn't answer that question too well before, but lung cancer, for example, has been associated. Uh, with silica exposures. So has things like scleroderma. It's a type of a skin autoimmune disease that can be fatal. Uh, other autoimmune diseases like lupus and things like that. Uh, but this is the sort of thing that you need a pretty sophisticated, experienced uh, occupational medicine doctor or other type of specialist to do it. And I think that that's where the lawyers come into play here. If they see that there's enough evidence to you know go down that road and really play this out and see is it the right manifestation of symptoms is it the right test is it the right exposures and once you get that um, it really comes down to talking to your lawyers about you know how did you get this what are the exposures what were the companies that were involved are there other people in your workplace that know about this and you know I, I think the lawyers have to guide that process once that happens is there a statute of limitations on these cases? Yeah, I mean, almost invariably, there's a statute of limitations. It can vary from state to state. Most states nowadays have what we call a discovery statute, which means the clock doesn't start to tick until the person either knew there was a connection between their health problem uh, or they should have known it. You know, their doctor mentioned something to them and they didn't get a follow-up test or something. But usually that's what starts the, the clock ticking, thank goodness. In the old days, it used to be the exposure. You know, so you're exposed 20 years ago, you weren't sick, but you should have filed your lawsuit 18 years ago. <laughs> it's a pretty yeah. 
approach, but that happens. So you do have these statute of limitations. In most states, it varies. It, most of them tend to be two to three years. Um, uh, some states as little as one, some as long as five. And so you do want to get them in. Another reason why, you know, if you're having these concerns, again, the should have known clock may be ticking. You know, if you think you might have it, that may be enough to get the clock ticking that your statute limitations is running and you've just got to talk to a, to a lawyer. If you blow the statute, if you go too long, you'll be barred forever in most jurisdictions from bring, bringing a claim, no matter how sick you get. And as unfair as that can be, that's yeah. the law. So that's the questions we have. I could talk to lawyers all day, but what, any uh, parting words of wisdom for us, Gary? Uh, well, it's just, um, uh, you, thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate it. I, I think uh, the main thing is for people who uh, have these concerns to talk to, uh, you know, number one, talk to their doctors. Uh, they may even want to search out uh, a more specialized type of doctor if they have access to getting on the internet and doing some research. Some universities have good people. Uh, but, you know, once that initial suspicion index is raised, I think the key is really talking to uh, a lawyer who knows his way around this, his or her way around, and uh, doing the appropriate follow-up. And of course, anything that you can do to protect yourself and minimize any continuing exposure, do that, but understand that that's not enough. If this, if this fuse has been lit in your body, stopping exposure to sand is not going to solve the problem. You know, they will continue on. If people want to contact you directly, either potential plaintiffs or other other law firms, I can. I hope if you saw the beginning, you're still on here. Uh, our firm really likes working with Simmons. Um, sure. And uh, if you're a lawyer who doesn't know a lot about this, I'm sure Gary'd be happy to talk to you um, about about working together potentially on some cases. But I, I don't want to speak for you. But where where can people find you, Gary? Uh, well, uh, it's Simmons Hanley Conroy. We have offices. Uh, around the country, actually. Um, I am officially, even though I'm sitting in Virginia at the moment, uh, uh, I'm officially officing in the New York City office. Our main office is actually in Alton, Illinois. Uh, I spend a lot of time in our Los Angeles and San Francisco offices just because we have so many trials out there. But somebody can always uh, get get me i guess our main number in new york is 212-784-6400 and if you just punch simmons hanley conroy in your internet our firm will come up uh, you could try my last name although that can be challenging uh, d-i capital m-u-z-i-o but i think the easiest way is to talk to you you know uh and uh, i'm happy to talk to somebody that got particular questions but particularly clients, probably the best thing that they could do would be contact your office. And if you feel like uh, they should talk to me directly or somebody else in our firm, we can make whatever happen needs to happen, happen. Well, thank you for, you know, coming on here. Thanks so much. And uh, we look forward to some more, some more big verdicts from Gary soon. <laughs> thank you. Thank you both. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Gary. Bye. That concludes this episode of the King Law Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe and check out our socials at King Law Attorneys. And if you've happened to have been injured or charged with a crime, now you know who to call. King Law. Take charge.